Thanks, James. Good to be here. Well, uh, the CEO is still sell selling stock, so that's happening. And uh, as for the rest, I guess we'll yeah, I guess we'll just have to wait for the thirteen F filings to come out, so we'll know who has sold, who hasn't. So I'm guessing the big players are pretty much out by now, but we'll see. But uh, Nvidia reminds me of this uh, quote that I read about uh, how a company goes bankrupt. You know, it's like it happens gradually, and then all of a sudden, it's not. It's not like you're getting a smooth curve down or a smooth curve up or something. It's like the event just happens and then you have the consequence. So I think with NVIDIA, we'll see something similar. Yeah, so Nvidia, uh, Applet Digital, these are all companies that I started following mainly because I started following Applet Digital back when it was Applet Blockchain, and I kind of saw that whole evolution. And Nvidia, you know how it fits together in this with the whole Code Wave deal and all the all this history, right? So I was looking at uh, Supermicro, and it just struck me that that stock is just straight up like stocks don't move like that and i couldn't find anything exactly wrong with the company it's not like uh, i believe they are inflating their receivables or something although they have uh, had issues with the sec wherein they have had to pay a fine and admit to have uh, inflated revenues in the past but i mean that's the past right we should just put that in the past and look at what's happening with the company right now and what's happening with the company right now is I don't see any red flags the way I saw for NVIDIA, but it's just amazing the way the stock has moved. You don't get a stock going from $25, $50 all the way to $350 in such a short period of time. And I read the bullish report. And the bullish report is basically just saying AI or the fact that the company's uh, stock is up like 150, 200% means it's going to go up another 100 to 150, 200%. And like, that makes no sense. So I just looked into the 10K, which uh, they filed for the June quarter. And I saw that it's just grossly overvalued. I mean, here you have a company which is pretty much a manufacturing business being valued at this amazing multiple. And if you just look at their margins, you will see that there is no way they should be valued at this level. I mean, you have, uh, like, you take a stock like Meta. Let's say Meta trades at 100 PE. Okay, but Meta has 80% gross margins. Meta is growing revenue at say 30% a year. So that 100 PE, by the time the business stabilizes, is going to get compressed to a 20 PE. And if the S&P is trading at a say 25 PE and a growth stock is trading at a 25 PE or a 30 PE, that's still acceptable, right? But here you have a manufacturing business trading as though it's uh, Meta or an Apple. 
which doesn't make any sense to me. So that was my reason for getting into it. So it's more of a valuation shot. And it's also a play on the inventory cycle because uh, you saw what happened with HPQ. Uh, on, you saw pretty much what happened to all the other hardware manufacturers. So outside the semiconductors, which is a bubble, what's happening is that the companies, the, the hardware companies are actually getting penalized when they report lower revenues and they report inventory write downs. And I believe, I mean, uh, semiconductors are not going to be immune to this. So at some point, pretty much the whole space when they take inventory write downs, it's like uh, looking at retail, right? When retail is suffering, the entire sector is suffering. You're not going to have a Walmart or a Target just shooting up because, you know, people like the stock because they say the right things or something. Like, that's not going to happen. So when the correction happens across the space, it's going to hit the whole space. So SMCI is just is just a valuation shot. It's not a allegation of, you know, something shady going on behind the scenes. Although, if you look at some of their practices, yeah, sorry. It is, yeah. But again, I mean, uh, it's a pretty common thing in Asia. Like, even if you look at South Korean stocks, you'll find you'll find a lot of uh, dealings like that. And even in Japan, it used to be pretty common until I think at some point the government came in and said, you can't do this anymore. So Japanese companies, uh, the big, say, 10, 20 companies, they would hold stock in the other big 20, 10, 20 companies. It used to be like a click where, you know, you hold the stock of the other company. So, I mean, these webs... Uh, and I mean, I'm from India and in Indian stocks, like 50% of the entire uh, stock market is owned by the groups that control the companies. So it's like a pretty big number, but I mean, so that's in essence, that's not a reason to say that there's something shady going on. It's a cause of concern because minority shareholders can get hurt, but that's the same almost with other companies as well, right? There are always uh, things that management can do to hurt minority shareholders. And it's true even in U.S. companies. I mean, you look at oil and gas, Carl Icahn has done plenty of things to hurt the shareholders of companies that he has invested in. So just Google Chesapeake Energy and you'll have your, I mean, you have all those dealings going back. And recently with Sandridge, what he did. So, I mean, um, the family dealings, the control controlling interest is, not exactly a problem, is just something that I found very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at, so with any kind of manufacturing business, it's always an up-down, up-down cycle, right? I mean, pretty much any commodity and chips right now are pretty much a commodity. So 
with anything you see these uh, cycles i mean you see these cycles in the bigger markets as well but putting that aside so 2020-21 you had these huge supply disruptions because of covid because of the lockdowns and it got to a point where even the basic logic chips that uh, say a tesla would need to you know do the up down on the windows like even that wasn't available and so you had this period where everyone was ordering inventory so uh, this is something the it's a typical supply chain concept called the bullwhip effect wherein i mean you are a retailer and you are facing increased you know footfalls in your store what do you do you order more inventory and the guy who's selling to you he sees that you are ordering more inventory so what does he do he orders more inventory and this just pretty much goes back all the way and then the manufacturer is like wait a minute i need to increase my production because there's this huge demand and 2020 21 every day in the news you were bombarded with the fact that there just isn't enough chips and there just wasn't enough of anything in goods right so what happened was a typical overordering cycle manufacturers ramped up capacity ramped up production and then everyone you know took on this huge inventory and they got kind of stuck with it and eventually end demand collapsed because the fed raised rates the economy just wasn't able to sustain those high rates i mean contrary to what you see seven stocks is not the economy right like the real economy is actually suffering every single data print you look at it it's suffering and the whole thing just fell off a cliff like retail demand slump demand for automobile slump demand for uh, pc slump i think something like 40% decline in demand for pcs or something like don't quote me on that but demand for smartphones slumped and all the uh, when covid lockdowns happened the companies instituted work from home which means they had to upgrade the it infrastructure they had to give laptops for employees who you know were used to working from workstations and you had this whole demand for it and computing equipment and that is not going to repeat that was a pretty much one off thing but uh, it looks like manufacturers started to believe that this would repeat and now you you have the bust part of the cycle where you're grappling with excess inventory and the other uh, problem in this situation is you had this us sanctions on huawei that's the 5g giant in china so because of the sanctions the chinese did a lot of overordering because they were not sure whether they would get the supplies that they needed right and so again there was a lot of stocking up over there and that's ending now so we are dealing with all these uh, repercussions at the same time and the final dynamic here is when tables pay you over 5% how much does it cost you to finance your inventory meaning your working capital if you can get a i mean other than corvi which magically somehow gets loans you know using chips as collateral a regular a regular reseller regular uh, holder of inventory is not going to you know like you cannot go to a bank and say you can put your money in tables or you can give me money to finance all this inventory at 5% bank would be like give me 10% so what happens is when the cost of holding your inventory goes up you tend to reduce your inventory level so you have that dynamic in place as well so all these put together i think chip industry is very much in a downturn and the statistics say it like the semiconductor industry association statistics say it 
the idc statistics on pc sales and everything like that says uh, it's going down but the stock market isn't saying it yet so i think that's where the asymmetry lies and again i'm not a semiconductor expert i'm not a chip expert i'm just looking at what's happening and just forming the thesis based on the macro and what i have seen so yeah right yeah Well, um, I don't want to get too political either because like, you know, the moment you say something is going to get uh, twisted 10x, it's going to be like a Chinese whisper and then they're going to be like, oh, this guy is, you know, filling the blanks. So let's not get into that. But um, one immediate thing that concerned me is the fact that Israel also attacked parts of Lebanon. And that just got me thinking in 2020, there was a explosion in a warehouse in Lebanon where a huge amount of ammonium nitrate just ignited. And if you look at, that's the feedstock for fertilizers. So fertilizer stocks are going up on this news. And I think that's something that investors can look into, especially considering how cheap those stocks are. So one of my problems with performing in 2022 was actually this, like I'm a fundamental focused investor. And let's say I buy a fertilizer stock at an AP. The company grows earnings, the company grows revenues, but the stock goes down and it becomes a 4PE stock. You buy a 4PE stock, there's nothing wrong with the company, it becomes a 2PE stock. So you had the situation wherein valuations, fundamentals just didn't matter. So now if you look at what's happening with the, especially with the fertilizer stocks, what you can see is that finally fundamentals are starting to matter. And these stocks are going up. So I believe that's a trend that we will see continue. And other investment idea is um, you look at uh, what Israel is known for. It's known for pharmaceuticals, uh, generic pharmaceuticals, not the branded drugs. And it's known for its tech industry. So uh, Silicon Valley, uh, they invest only in mostly three places outside of US, right? One is Israel, the other is China, the third is India. And so this is, uh, Israel is a pretty big market for venture capital. So you have to kind of ask what's going on there. And you have all these Israeli tech companies listed on the NASDAQ. So you kind of have to like, look at what's going to happen to the valuations of those stocks, because it's not that the stocks are overvalued or undervalued. Like that's not the criteria here. It's like, you have this big institutional investor and they're like, what is my exposure to Israel? And if they see that, you know, they have this stock which has exposure, they just sell it, get rid of it. They're not going to do the due diligence to figure out whether... So, for instance, my website runs on Wix, Wix.com. It's an Israeli company. And they have said they have data centers all over the world, so your data is safe and all that. But you hold the stock, what are you doing? You're just thinking, okay, do I want to take the risk of being in an Israeli tech company when Israel is at war? And we actually saw something similar happen when India almost went to war with Pakistan, wherein the tech company CEOs actually scrambled and they 
contacted New Delhi and said, please do not declare war because our customers, everyone is scared. You know, like you had, you, you've seen, I mean, I've seen those dynamics play out in a different part of the tech world in the past. So that gives me my perspective. So I wouldn't want to be an uh, investor in Israeli tech companies now, regardless of valuation. Whatever the fundamentals, whatever it is, you don't want to touch that. And then you look at, okay, what else does Israel have? It has a massive gas field. And they just told Chevron to shut production because they are scared of, uh, you know, causing some kind of issues. Like, you know, one false step and you never know what could happen, right? So who is the beneficiary here? And I mean, sure, U.S. has its LNG infrastructure. U.S. is like the number two oil producer or number one oil producer in the world. So, you know, you can look at the U.S. as a beneficiary, but... U.S. is right now a beneficiary of almost everything, right? I mean, you have conflict in the Middle East, U.S. benefits because defense stocks goes up. You have the Russia-Ukraine war, U.S. benefits because Europe is buying LNG from the U.S. So, I mean, that's pretty much played out. Like, everyone knows that U.S. is going to benefit and the stocks are priced accordingly. So, I just thought, okay, what's not priced accordingly? And then I looked at the Aussie dollar. It's just straight down, right? And that doesn't make sense because, I mean, sure, Australia has its own problems, so there's probably a good reason, but with currencies, it's all relative, right? And Australia has LNG, Australia has coal, Australia is about as far removed from this conflict as you can get. So why not long Aussie dollar? So I'm just thinking about uh, uh, trades which are not, I mean, you could just do the first order trade and say there's conflict by the VIX, by gold, by oil, by treasuries. But looking beyond that, I was just trying to put together some trade ideas. Sure. So I, uh, I was reading the Austrian economists who, uh, when the Fed started QE in 2008, they predicted that this is going to lead to hyperinflation. There's a website, uh, ShadowStats, which uh, does an alternative interpretation to the BLS CPI. And they were predicting hyperinflation 2012, hyperinflation 2013, hyperinflation 2014. And Really, I mean, hats off to those guys because those reports are still online. You can find it, you can read it, and you can see uh, exactly what their argument was. And the reason the hyperinflation didn't happen back then is because 2008 was a massive deflationary shock, right? I mean, assets got written down, banks went bust, people lost their value of those homes got written down, the stock market took a dive, and the print, money printing that the Fed did was badly enough 
to get the economy out of the deflationary shock. And the other dynamic that happened was all this money that they printed went into tech. And this is where you got services became super cheap because everything was subsidized by these tech companies making losses. I mean, you take, uh, you take grocery delivery. How did that come about? They lose a dollar for every dollar in revenue they make, but it's subsidized by the VC money, which is again subsidized by the Fed holding interest rates at zero. So you had this whole dynamic where asset prices went up, companies you know, scaled in terms of revenues and our lifestyle got cheaper on the back of someone else taking the loss. And those losses didn't matter because the market was very forgiving of losses, which is what happens when the cost of capital is zero. When the cost of capital is zero, you may as well just let valuations balloon. Your losses don't matter. You can get free money, right? And so a living standard actually got better, even though the Fed was printing money. And then all this changed when they handed direct stimulus checks in 2020-21. And the money went from the banks to the VCs to these tech companies to uh, the broader economy. It went directly from the Fed to the Treasury to the uh, taxpayers, to the everyday Joe. And what did they do with it? Yeah, they spent it. And they spent and spent and spent. And this was at the time when supply was getting destroyed because of lockdowns. So you had this huge inflation wave come up. And then the Fed had to act. When the Fed acted, the venture capital space pretty much died. I mean, you wouldn't see it in the tech stock valuations. But if you go talk to a VC, you would see that. I mean, Tiger Global had, I think, a 50% down year last year or 60% down year. And... I'm pretty sure they haven't even taken all the losses that they are supposed to take, right? So there's much more losses sitting in the space. And what happened is all these unprofitable tech companies, they had to raise prices. So you see all these uh, like your Uber and your DoorDash and pretty much all these e-commerce companies, they are forced to raise prices. And at the same time, you have wages going up because of inflation. So now we have this whole spiral of all the things that led to higher living standards and pretty much zero consumer price inflation. It's all reversing in the span of one, one and a half years, which is a pretty big adjustment. I mean, you had uh, zero interest rates for close to a decade, and then all of a sudden interest rates are at 5.25%. And the economy does not adjust as fast as the Fed you know, can raise or lower rates. The economy takes its own time and that's what we are seeing. So now what's happening is inflation is making a comeback because the sudden shock that the Fed induced, that's now worn off. And the underlying inflation dynamics still haven't changed. So for instance, last year, oil prices went down in the second half because Biden flooded the US with oil by opening the strategic petroleum reserve. But that's something that you can only do once. You cannot repeat that. So now that oil is gone, what happens? Oil goes back up again. And today I was reading about uh, oranges concentrate being up like 50% this year, outperforming the NASDAQ. And that's a staple, right? So you have all these commodities going up and olive oil has gone straight up because of bad weather in Spain. So you have... Uh, all these other commodities that are actually in use that are picking up mainly because 
the supply hasn't gone gone up and the demand hasn't gone down and the demand hasn't gone down because americans have gone more and more into debt in order to fund their lifestyle because uh, the thing with inflation is it's easy to think like i mean if you have lived through the 70s maybe or if you have relatives who lived through the great depression or such events you know that these trends can be long lasting and you try to kind of adjust your behavior accordingly but if you have gone from having an extremely good year to a not so good year you don't adjust your lifestyle immediately so you're still going to travel you're still going to do all the same things that you did maybe you cut out a little here and there but broadly you're not going to change your lifestyle it's going to take something pretty drastic to change your lifestyle and that's not going to happen with one one and a half years of inflation so probably what happens is you're going to have a prolonged period of high inflation before people change their lifestyle so i think uh, the kind of demand that we are seeing it doesn't slow down as fast as the fed expects no matter how high they raise rates because people are just going to load up on debt and maintain their lifestyle absolutely absolutely so that's that's kind of what we saw in 2008 right i mean home prices just crashed banks crashed everything crashed everything just came to a standstill and then people readjusted readjust so it's like you have a huge shock people will definitely like i mean if you lose a job you're not going to consume the same way you did before but absent a huge shock like that inflation is going to remain a problem so what the fed i mean i think this is what they are trying to do they are, they tried creating that shock back in to the back last year when they raised rates so aggressively but somewhere along the way uh, especially with the silicon valley bank i think they lost the plot and they thought one bank rescue in the middle of high high rates is not going to change much but it changed everything and if you look at inflation that's right around the time when it started to make a comeback so they had that um, i think in like 10 12 days they reversed a whole years worth of qt so in march the fed balance sheet spiked up all the way back to their 2022 highs and it all happened over a period of 2 weeks and then they brought that down again but i think that uh, stimulus over that short period was enough to bring inflation back and unless they really tighten and keep tightening and not repeat something like that so actually i mean to go back silicon valley was the perfect time to create the deflationary shock and an inflation for good instead they chose to print money so as long as the fed now people think the next time there's a deflationary shock the fed will just print money and that goes into your inflation expectations right i mean if the fed had not printed money at that time people would think okay 
so what if a bank fails? Money is still going to be trite. Now it's like, let's just wait for something bad to happen and the Fed will go back to printing money because that's what they've done for the last 14 years. That's what they'll continue to do, you know, until something changes. So I think that's also playing into the inflation dynamic. Yeah, so uh, the situation that he's talking about, um, you have the Fed expanding its balance sheet, you have the Treasury running massive deficits, and you have this underlying current of inflation, but at the same time you have, I mean, nominal GDP growth requires some actual GDP growth plus inflation, right? So you should have a little bit of real growth in there. And now what's happening is the Fed is tightening the treasury is running massive deficits, real growth is slowing. And that is not good for stocks. And you should have, you should, have, so let's say that part of your earnings growth is due to inflation because you're hiking prices, but part of it is real growth because you are investing in capacity, you are expanding operations, you are actually being more productive, right? Which is pretty much what built America, the productivity. Now that's not happening. What we are seeing is stagnant growth or no growth. And we are seeing the nominal GDP is rising only because of inflation. And again, the Fed balance sheet, which should fund all of this, that's not rising. So that's not good for stocks. So somewhere along this, like one of these metrics has to change in order for the stock market to resume like an Argentina-like uptrend. Right, where you can have inflation, but stocks do well. And I don't see that happening until the Fed changes course.
Right. I mean, you listen to uh, FinTwit influencers like Rahul Paul, all they say is more cowbell, meaning more QE. And if that doesn't happen in September, they are like, no, it will happen in December. If it doesn't happen in December, then it's 2024 thing. But they are pretty consistent in their message that the Fed is going to start printing. And unless the Fed does something to discourage such expectations, everyone's going to, I mean, so you've seen something happen for 14 years, right? I mean, uh, if you are in your 30s, you came into finance at a time when the Fed was printing money. You have spent your whole career in finance during a time when the Fed was printing money. Even go back, like you started after the dot-com burst. What did you see? The Fed was printing money. So all you have seen is a Fed that has been printing money pretty consistently for the last close to two decades. And now Jerome Powell comes and says, no, we have changed our policy. We are going to let interest rates rise to its natural level and we are not going to print. And then you see the uh, treasury just going on a binge, you know, issuing debt, like, you know, it doesn't matter. And then you see the Fed balance sheet and the Fed is not technically bankrupt, right? So what they do is they create an asset which uh, hides their loss. So they convert their loss into an asset on the balance sheet. So they balance the books and that's what they've been doing. But the Fed is technically bankrupt because a loss is not an asset, right? So any other institution which tries to do what the Fed does, they would be declared bankrupt, but the Fed cannot declare bankruptcy. So they create a asset which, you know, hides the loss. And so people look at the Fed balance sheet and they think the Fed is not going to want to have this loss on its balance sheet. So they're going to print, they're going to take the value of their own assets up so that they can bail themselves out. So you have this dynamic in play as well. And I really don't know how this ends, but I mean, the Fed is basically trapped, right? So if the Fed prints money to finance the deficit or get dig itself out of its own technical bankruptcy, inflation is going to go straight up, especially with oil varietors and the conflict in the Middle East, inflation is going to go straight up. And if the Fed doesn't print, we get uh, an environment with no growth. We get pretty much what we are seeing where everyone is frustrated, right? Because stocks can't go up or down. Real estate, nothing is happening because you cannot finance property at these rates. So it's just impossible. And you're just dragging out the mystery because every month inflation stays this high, middle and lower income Americans suffer. And they've already been suffering since 2021. And the longer you drag this out, there'll be a political solution. You're seeing this with the Hollywood strikes, the auto workers strikes. You saw this last year with the longshoremen at the ports. They were striking. Pretty soon you're going to have strikes all over the place because people are inflation is something that makes people very miserable at the ground level, right? It's something that affects you every day in every purchase you make. I mean, you and I, we may work from our homes, not go out much, and you know, we don't see this, but Someone who is actually out every single day spending as part of the process of making money. Like, let's say you're a handyman or a plumber or a taxi driver or pretty much anyone who is in any job that requires you step outside the house. You're confronting inflation every single day. And the longer it drags out, the more you're going to want a political solution. It's just that's why the Fed is afraid of the 70s. That's why 
Powell keeps talking about not wanting to be an author burns, right? And that's precisely this reason, because once inflation gets out of control like that, you get a political solution. And the political solution is not good for the rich people who actually control the Fed. The Fed is a private institution. It's controlled by private people. And this may sound like a conspiracy theory, but if you read the creature from Jekyll Island, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So again, like, so they don't want that solution. They don't want that political solution. So the Fed is trapped. And that is like, I can't see a way out, right? Um, sure. I mean, so if uh, everyone knows the 70s, everyone knows gold went from a controlled price of $35, $42 all the way to $800. Everyone knows the Hunt brothers. They know that lumber shot up, oil shot up. Like, you know all these stories. But um, again, like that was the 70s. And 70s was a time when technology wasn't where it is today, right? Sure, you had uh, radio, you had microwaves, you had televisions, but it wasn't something that uh, permeated our everyday lives. I mean, semiconductors wasn't a term back then. So a return to the 70s is not exactly something that uh, is going to happen now. It's going to be a very different cycle. And again, in 70s, China was under pretty much an uh, iron curtain of its own, right? You had the whole cultural revolution and stuff going on. China wasn't part of the world economy. India wasn't part of the world economy. And all of that has changed. So I think the dynamics this time will be very different, but sure, the same stagflation theme is going to play out. Unless, of course, we get a massive deflationary shock, like, for instance, the Fed hikes by 50 basis points and increases QT to uh, from 95 billion a month to like 170 billion a month or something, and then they just bring everything crashing down. I think the longer the status quo goes on, the longer I think we'll get to a stagnationary period, which will last for a pretty long time. Yeah, I mean, um, that's the other aspect to it. Like, I mean, sure, like now we accept the dollar as a reserve currency, but the more the uh, treasury weaponizes the dollar, I mean, it started with kicking Iran out of SWIFT, which didn't matter in the grand scheme of things. Then it started with kicking Russia out of SWIFT, which again had some kind of pushback, but not much. But now you have the situation where the US has just weaponized the banking system against everybody, right? So the longer this goes on, it's hard to tell. And you have U.S. presidential candidates openly talking about wanting to exclude China from accessing the U.S. market. So you see a situation, and China is the biggest holder of treasury. So you see a situation like this, it's hard to believe that the U.S. currency can stay the reserve currency for much longer. And if that happens, then definitely the Fed will lose control. So you had this period in the 70s, the late 70s, when inflation was too high 
and uh, Jimmy Carter was the president, and they were issuing uh, U.S. government bonds in Swiss franc and Deutsche Marks because external creditors did not want U.S. dollars because they're like, yeah, they're going to print the dollars anyway. So you could you could very well get to a situation like that. I mean, it, it it's not that it just happens to Argentina or other basket case countries, right? You have debt to GDP at this high level, it could very well happen to the US. And it's something similar to what we have seen in Japan this year. For such a long time, the Japanese debt to GDP did not matter. For such a long time, the Bank of Japan's yield curve control did not matter. The Bank of Japan is the single biggest buyer of Japanese stock ETFs for the last five, 10 years. And none of that stuff mattered. And then all of a sudden it mattered, right? So history is, Pretty much that, and it was Lenin who said this, right? There are weeks when there are decades when nothing's happened, and there are weeks when decades happen. So, I think we are kind of getting to that situation, even with the US, right? I mean, this is the time that you really have to be careful with your exposure to the dollar and US assets because things can just change in a heartbeat. Like the the. Um, I think it started with the change in governor. So there was some policy uncertainty there. And then when they, uh, when the US was hiking, Europe was hiking, Australia is hiking, Japanese were like, no, we're just going to do yield curve control. We're just going to keep continuing to do whatever we've been doing for so long. And at some point, I think investors had just had enough of it. Now, I don't like the thing with central bank policies is, you have one reaction which is immediate and then one reaction which is you know little longer down the road and when the bank of japan said we are not going to hike rates as fast as the fed it looked like a you know prudent decision because the fed was just trying to break things and japan is a very tranquil society where they don't want to break things right so that's the whole difference between the american way and the japanese way so it seemed like a good idea but then a year down the line, it looks like markets have had enough. And they are punishing the yen, they are punishing the Japanese bond market, and stocks are going up. So so here's the other thing. Like everyone talks about Japanese equities being in a bull market. But if you look at the two Japanese ETFs listed in the US, so I'm just gonna go uh, pull that up right now because I think it's relevant. Um so you have the DXJ, which is the ETF which has hedged for the currency and that's up like 38% this year. And then you have the other ETF which is uh, EWJ which is, just give me a sec. Just give me a second. So you have the other Japanese ETF which is EWJ and that's up like 9.5% this year. And the reason for this difference in performance is Japanese stocks actually haven't done well. It is just that when you look at the Nikkei in JPY terms, or if you look at certain stocks in JPY USD terms, it's like everyone's crowding into it and it looks like Japanese stocks have done well, but they haven't. Because, um, so the other dynamic with uh, stocks in foreign currencies is that uh, sometimes the currency depreciates more than uh, the 
less than inflation that's going on in the economy. So for instance, you have a high rate of inflation, but the FX value does not reflect it. And then you have the other flip side of it too, right? So sometimes the currency just uh, overshoots on the way up and down. And with Japanese stocks, what's happened is for a very long time, I mean, uh, going back to at least 2016, 2017, asset managers were talking about how Japanese stocks are cheap. How about how all these conglomerates, I mean, they were all priced at less than 10 times earnings. So it wasn't hard to find a big bank with a 2, 3x earnings multiple. And they were, they pretty much stayed at that level for years and years and years and nothing happened. And then the perception about Japan changed. And suddenly these stocks just flew, like literally flew and the currency tanked. And then Japan became the market that everyone talks about. So I think, uh, I mean, Japanese situation is unique because it's just something that's very difficult to trade. And that's something it's very difficult to understand also if you're not familiar with that market. So Japan, uh, so I mean, I'm sorry to say Japan is unique again, but Japan is unique in this aspect in that they have pretty open, uh, uh, cap they don't have capital control. So capital is pretty free to move. And what's happened is that over the decades, Japan, Japanese capital has gone literally everywhere. Right? I mean, it's financed the whole world. So I think uh, the Japanese do have options outside the stock market. I mean, it's different in a like if you take a country like Argentina, it's very difficult to get your money out because you have capital controls, but Japan doesn't. So whatever happens to the end, whatever happens to the domestic market, the investors in Japan can decide where they want to keep their capital. And right now, I think because the currency has depreciated so much, probably they are bringing their capital back because they see more opportunities in Japan. Uh, I think that's what's happening. And so uh, let me put it this way. I've been a gold bug since 2014 and I've read all the books like the Austrian Economist, the gold bugs, like you name it. I've listened to all their arguments and every once in a while they come up with something like 
in 2012-14, it was China is going to back the yuan with uh, gold. Russia is going to back yuan with gold. And now it's like there's going to be a BRICS currency that's going to compete with the dollar. And really, I mean, uh, you have to ask yourself, are any of these countries willing to give up their independent currency? Of course not. And even for the euro, it was so difficult. But uh, for the euro, at least there was uh, the Maastricht Treaty. And when they reunified East and West Germany, that was kind of when it was agreed that they would go with the common currency. And it makes sense because it's one single geographic region. Whereas BRICS, it's it's all over the place, right? I mean, you have South Africa, which is in a completely different continent. You have India and China, which don't see eye to eye, at least in public on most policy issues. And then you have Russia, which is in a you know, league of its own. And then like Brazil, which is again in a different continent. It's hard to see how they would coordinate and launch a currency. I mean, if a bunch of 20 African nations got together and created their own common currency, sure, I would understand it. It makes sense, like how the euro was created. If some Central Asian countries, you know, the stands, if they got together and created a currency, I, I would understand that. But And I would even understand if Argentina, like uh, Javier is now saying that, you know, they'll just get rid of the peso and adopt the dollar as their currency. So something like that happening, I would still understand that. But for these disparate set of nations to get together and have a central bank which dictates the fate for all of them, I don't see that happening. And you also have to uh, look at the other thing that's happening with the BRICS is that uh, UAE and uh, Ethiopia and some other countries are planning to join the BRICS. They are asking to join the BRICS as if, you know, it's going to be an alliance of some sort. And when you get to that stage, I don't think you're going to want a central bank as well. Right? I think it's more going to be a power alliance than a monetary alliance. Right. Right. Sure. Yeah. And uh, I mean, uh, I've traveled a bit through Asia, and what I found is that over the years, the Chinese currency is getting acceptance at the same level as the US dollar and the euro. Like you go to any of these uh, foreign exchange places, and they are. Accept Chinese currency and it's not at a big discount or anything. It's like almost equal to them accepting euros and uh, dollars. So I think definitely China is gaining that acceptance. And if at all, I mean, I don't believe it's going to happen, but if at all if there is a BRICS currency, I think it would be uh, the yuan dominated. It will not be uh, dominated by rubles or rials or rupees or any of the other currencies. Uh, no, not really. I would, I would, I would rather see a Bitcoin standard, you know, because 
and gold has gold has its charm and the the issue again comes to custody right so you have a gold standard you are dependent on the banks and the you know the vaulting facilities to stay honest and stay true and would you rather trust the custodians and the accountants and the audits or would you just trust gold right i mean 20 years back we didn't have the option to just trust gold but now we do and as long as there are honest bitcoin nodes out there there is no way that bitcoin can be counterfeited whereas there are a lot of theories if you go read gata the they talk about how all the gld etf gold is hypothecated and rehypothecated and if you actually try to redeem it it's not going to be there so you have all those issues with the gold standard that you just don't have with the bitcoin standard yeah um, so if you look at us before the establishment of the federal reserve you had crisis and what would happen is people would take their losses and the economy would just move on right it wouldn't become systemic so in 1907 when a bank failed the nickelbrocker trust which started the supposed panic of 1907 what group of bankers got together and decided okay this is the solution we'll work it out you know let's not uh, it was a panic it wasn't a depression you got your depression after the fed came to being so uh what i'm trying to say is that as long as you have free banking which is what you would have under a bitcoin standard you're not going to have these huge uh, i mean you're not going to have a systemically important financial institution you're not going to have one bank that's getting bailed out in order to take over another troubled bank and you're not going to have taxpayers footing the bill if you make a mistake you pay for it which is pretty much how capitalism should work right right i mean like uh, if uh, the way you had gm for and all these auto companies going for a bailout to the government in 2008 if uh, you know if they were like go 100 years back when henry ford introduced the automobile if these were the big horse carriage makers and the you know bullwhip makers they would have gotten a government bailout and they would have been told to just produce and produce even though there's no market for their product right and that's what happens with the bailout like you're just incentivizing zombie companies to stay alive when they really shouldn't be allowed to stay alive Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. And the, the Russell, it's uh, 
And again, with the, uh, the market cap weight indices, what's happening is success begets success, meaning you have these index funds and everyone says, okay, indexing is better than stock picking. So you have people allocating more to index funds. And what do the index funds do? They buy the biggest companies in the index, so they get bigger. And you just have this whole uh, virtuous cycle, which is benefiting those companies. And the the problem comes when you have companies in the Russell, again, like I talked about last year, where you had value stocks go from a 4 PE to a 2 PE, even though there was nothing wrong with the company, even though the company is growing. And you get into this situation because at some point, the big companies just become the market and everyone forgets the rest. And this is passive investing coming full circle, right? Like now everyone is passive. No one wants to do active anymore. And then at some point this will turn and then you'll have the cycle going in reverse. You'll have people, I mean, would you rather buy uh, the entire, like Warren Buffett talks about if you buy a stock, would you want to own the whole company, right? So would you rather want to buy Apple or would you rather want to buy the entire United Kingdom stock market? It's the same. Market cap wise, it's the same. Would you rather want to buy Apple and say NVIDIA or would you want to buy the whole Indian stock market? And they are at the same level. It's like the discrepancy is so, like it's so blatantly obvious now that at some point there'll be a solution. It's like, you know, for it's like with the Japan example, like everyone thought, oh, Japan's unique, Japan's unique. And then it turns out like this year, it turns out it's not so unique after all. And I think with the mega caps, you're going to have this, you're going to have something very similar happen. And we have seen this before. We have seen this with the Nifty 50 craze. There was this quote that went around where, you know, they said, you can't get fired for buying IBM. Like, that was a staple quote for an asset manager. Like just buy IBM because, I mean, it's the big stock. And uh, I mean, uh, you have these uh, finance books that are more like journals where they just go back and talk about how families did during those times, right? And I read the story about a family where the father says, never sell your IBM share. And this sounds weird to us because IBM is just another company and it's not even dominant anymore. But in the 60s and 70s, everyone thought IBM is the, it's like Microsoft in 2000s. And you, you just go back and see how quickly sentiment can shift and for all you know, I mean, like in 2017, it was the fangs. Now we don't hear about the fangs. You hear about the magnificent seven. You have stocks that are like, no one cares about Netflix anymore, right? It's done. So it's out and Nvidia is the new uh, poster child. So these, th these shifts happen and once they do, no one's going to talk about them. So you're now going to hear about it. And then it's like, you know, you move on to the next thing. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it's like Microsoft, right? Microsoft became a stable dividend paying stock. Went from being a growth stock to a stable dividend paying stock. And Microsoft isn't going anywhere because 
they have built something that the entire world needs and it's the same thing with ibm like you go to a big bank chances are their back end runs on an ibm mainframe now maybe the new fintech startups don't need an ibm mainframe but the big banks do you go to any legacy insurance company like pretty much everyone uses ibm and the reason is because they installed it back in the 60s and 70s and rather than change they're just going to continue with the status quo and i'm not going to give up my ios and my windows you're not going to give up your you know dominant operating system is just 10 years from now chances are those oss actually just uh, stay the same with upgrades maybe but those companies are going to be around unless something like you know like blackberry and apple or you know something drastic happens in which case you get a yeah well um uh, so bitcoin is dominant and there's a reason for it right it's been around the longest and the other reason bitcoin has done so well is because whenever there's an altcoin that comes up with a capability bitcoin doesn't have bitcoin developers figure out a way to bring that capability or if that capability is unimportant then that coin just dies so that's let me preface my argument with i am a bitcoin maxi but i think there are use cases for crypto that go beyond being money and the projects that are working on those use cases they have merit and so with that said so the reason ethereum has suffered is because the ethereum foundation has sold some ethereum recently so there's that negative press and uh, as for the altcoins again so we are still in a crypto bear market it's been the altcoins peaked around april may 2021 so it's like a brutal two and a half year bear market but that's just it with early stage tech right early stage tech only does well when the money printer is going well like you need to have people with the capability to take risk to fund risk ventures and right now we are not seeing that so how this plays out how this ends i think it again all goes back to the fed you need to have a cycle of risk taking come in for people to start valuing startups the way they did in the past like the way a startup was valued in 1998 99 is not the same it was valued post 2000 and it's pretty similar to what we seeing the altcoins the crypto space now as for bitcoin itself i think uh, so there are two things at play here one of which i don't understand is Bitcoin had this huge run from like nineteen thousand five hundred dollars odd in March when the Silicon Valley Bank collapse happened, all the way to like thirty two k, and then it's like just hovering around. But all these moves, if you actually pull up the chart, it's happening. It's like you have a huge move in a couple of days, and then it just sits there doing nothing, and then you have another huge move, and then it just so that's not the way. Uh, Uh, anything normally trades right any asset no asset actually trades that way and the reason for this is the collapsing liquidity 
So if you look at uh, the USD uh, BTC pair on Binance or pretty much any exchange, you will find that volume has absolutely dried up. And why has volume dried up? There isn't really an answer for that. Could just be typical bear market behavior, but that's one part of it. The other part of it is you have MicroStrategy and you have all these other players who are accumulating Bitcoin without regard to the price. Now, in a way, this poses a risk too because uh, everyone who is accumulating Bitcoin is now sitting at a loss. So I think MicroStrategy's uh, price of uh, average acquisition price is around 29.5K or something. And Bitcoin is like obviously below that. And they've been doing this for more than three years and they are still not profitable in their strategy. So at some point, if they change course, that's going to be a big hit to the Bitcoin price because you're going to have that huge volume into the market. Now, MicroStrategy, Michael Saylor is pretty clear that he's not going to do that. But what about all the people who imitated Michael Saylor in the 2020 to 2021, 22 times? Are they going to just stick with the strategy in the downtime? Because typically, bad markets test people's patience. So although Bitcoin has done well, the lack of volume and the fact that you have this uh, dynamic with the MicroStrategy uh, influenced hodler group, I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I wouldn't at all be surprised if we see a move back to 20K or lower. And it happens just the way it has gone up, right? And like a few swift down days, it just goes there. And that totally makes sense with the fact that there's no volume. And um, so this ETF news, so let's get to that. So that's, I think the main uh, reason there's been so much speculation. Every time this ETF news has come out, Bitcoin has gone up and then it has reversed. Like the ETF news, so during the bull market, there was a time when Elon Musk just tweeted Dogecoin and it shot up when he just said Bitcoin is on the balance sheet and it shot up. And now we have this dynamic where there is something that's actually happening that's beneficial for Bitcoin adoption in terms of getting more players to put more money into it. And what's happening is the price is not responding. So I think that's pretty consistent with my view that it's in a bad market and the declining volume plus all these factors make me uh, so if I were trading it right now, I would not be trading it. If I were recommending it for a long-term allocation, I think that's something that you always, you know, will have, right? Uh, like how you have your gold. So when you view it as a investment, that's for a different purpose than just getting you immediate gains. I think that's the only time you would be in Bitcoin. And as for the alts, again, like um, the time to buy So I've worked for a company where we looked at gold mining stocks, the exploration stocks, the ones which are just did not drilling holes in the ground looking for gold. And the time you buy those companies is when sentiment has absolutely washed out. There is no volume because no one wants to trade these anymore. And every single piece of good news that they put out is met with more selling. And if you look at the altcoins right now, I think they are at that stage. So. I'm pretty sure some of them will go to zero and some of them will go 100x in the next cycle. So if you know what to pick, then of course you're going to do very well buying at this time rather than buying at other points in the cycle where you know, you're know you paying a higher premium. So yeah, that, that's how I would approach Bitcoin and crypto right now.
no, I'm definitely not sharing individual names, mainly because most of these stocks that I'm looking at, they don't trade. And if they trade, again, they are they're going to get pretty popular. And I haven't done full research. Yeah. Oh, so like you have these companies. So sure. So most of these gold exploration stocks are under a hundred million Canadian dollars in market cap. And by they don't trade, I mean you have these days where you'll have four thousand, five thousand shares uh, change hands, and these are stocks that trade at under a dollar. So that's pretty much non-existent volume, right? So I don't want to put out something and then have it go up and be like, oh, this guy is a penny stock promoter, you know? Like that that's something that I want to avoid. So yeah, I mean uh, broadly, if you're looking at the gold exploration plays i would stick with the ones that are listed in canada and have their assets mainly in north america because if you are going further out you're better off you know engaging someone for their expertise and then going further out than just you know like buying a stock in you know which is uh, doing something in ecuador or peru or something like you better be very careful when you're doing something like that but if you're just looking to allocate to the space, then, I mean, you can just stick to the GDXJ and the SILJ, those ETFs, or you can just go with the companies that are between $500 million to $1 billion in market cap, which is a pretty safe space to be because then you can use top losses and you don't have to worry about lack of liquidity. So that's what I would tell someone like, unless I'm particularly recommending something after having done the work to my clients, then... I would say that, you know, broadly, this is a safer way to play. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so on Twitter, it's at Kashyap286. And then there's my website, it's kashyapshiram.com. I also run a Telegram group, where, which is free to join, where I just post out random thoughts and trade ideas So in real time. So those are three good venues. Sure, looking forward to seeing you there. Yeah, thanks, James. Yeah, thanks, James. It's an absolute pleasure for me. All right, see ya.